open up to two places in your Bible, to the book of Acts chapter 16 and Luke chapter 23. Acts chapter 16 and Luke 23. Put these in here. All right. So we got some vital statistics for the book of Luke, 24 chapters, a little over 1,100 and a half verses, 1,151 verses, 20, over 25,000 words. You can see the specs on your sheet, or if you're watching online, I put them in the comments. Um, the author is Luke, approximately 63 to 68 AD is where the book is put together, relatively close. Luke was the beloved physician. Right? Colossians 4, Paul calls him the beloved physician. He seemed to travel with Paul. Uh, he seemed to be one of the only people with Paul at the end of his life. I mean, how's that for, how's that for your faith healers? That the quote-unquote greatest apostle that ever lived, the greatest Christian that ever lived, had to have a medical doctor with him near the time of his death. So for everybody that thinks like, you know, well, if you're walking with God, you'll never get sick. You'll always be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, so much for Paul, who died alone in a prison cell in need of a medical doctor at his side as his companion. So he was the beloved physician. He was a companion and fellow worker of the Apostle Paul. You'll notice in Acts 16, verse 10, notice the pronoun we, right? It says, and after he had seen the vision, meaning Paul, immediately we endeavored uh, to go into Macedonia, right? Assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So Paul, uh, Luke is that companion, and uh, Paul, Luke is credited with writing the book of Acts and the book of Luke. So there he is talking about Paul getting called, and we are going with him. So he's part of that company. The, the Luke is part of that company. Now, he's Jewish in ancestry, but Greek in his name. Probably a Jew of the dispersion, right? Many Jews had been dispersed, uh, previously, before Jesus Christ came, and they were mixed up in other cultures. And it looks like Luke has got a Gentile name, and because he's got a Gentile name, a lot of commentators say that Luke must have been a Gentile. And I don't think that really works, and I'll tell you why in a second. But uh, some say he was a native of Antioch, Syria. Um, you could research that if you want. And they'll say, well, because he came from Antioch, Syria, then he must be a Gentile. Well, Saul, our apostle, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he's from Tarsus, which is a Gentile place, which is modern-day Turkey. So that line of reasoning doesn't fly. Just because somebody was not born in Israel uh, doesn't mean they're not Jewish because the Jews had been scattered abroad uh, in, the, in the centuries before Christ, so in that dispersion. So um, here's why I don't think Luke could have been a Gentile. Because if Luke were a Gentile, God would have violated his own word. Because in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible says, Unto them, the Jews, he committed the oracles of God. So that is a very Jewish book. Every author is Jewish. And I don't think Luke is any exception. Just because he has a Gentile name, I think God is consistent. He said he gave his oracles, his sayings, his verbally spoken words to the Jews. That nation's privilege was to have the word of God. So every author is Jewish. And I don't think Luke is any exception to that rule. Um, that's a pattern God established. Key phrases, you'll notice. The Son of Man. Luke is consumed with the humanity of Christ. Um, Luke is a beloved physician. It follows then that Luke would be interested in the humanity of Christ. He was a medical doctor. And this medical doctor, he focuses on the human divine, the man who is God. Right? That the humanity of Christ. We forget about the humanity of Christ. We love the book of John. We love the deity of Christ. We love his power and his strength and his magnitude and his walking on water and his miracles. But never forget that Jesus Christ was also fully man, fully, hum fully God and fully man. That's the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He wasn't 50% man and 50% God. He was all man and all God at the same time. Amen. And when you figure that out, Please explain it to me. But that's what he was. Um, 
John, as we'll see, God willing, next week, he's the beloved disciple, not the beloved physician, and he's going to focus on the divine human. Right? He focuses on the deity of Christ, the divine human, the one who came down. Luke focuses on the human divine, the man who is also God, and focuses on the humanity of Christ. Key verse, let's go to Luke 23. Key verse. Uh, Luke 23, look at verse 47. Luke 23, 47. Luke 23, 47. Luke 23, 47. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Great. All right. Is Jesus Christ dying on the cross? He just committed his spirit to the Father. Again, showing the total control he had over his own death. You don't have that power, by the way. No man can keep alive his own soul. The Bible says. The Bible says there's no discharge from that war. <laughs> that war, when God kind of calls you off the battlefield, there's no discharge from that. You can't just say, hey, I'm sorry, God, come back next week. <laughs> you know, we see all those movies, right, where death is following somebody around. Oh, no, not now, death. I'm too busy now, death. I got eight lives left, death. No, when God calls your number, there's no discharge from that war, right? But Jesus Christ was a very special kind of man. He said, no man, take, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down, right? I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. So there he commits. In verse 46, he commits his spirit to his father. That's very different than you. And in 47, it says, Now that when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And that's a key verse because when you see the humanity of Christ, yes, he was all man, but he was a special kind of man. Amen. There was never a man like this man. This was a righteous man, a special man, and a hardened centurion who'd seen people probably call for their mama in those final hours as they died these excruciating deaths that the Romans put people through. You understand the Romans were good at a few things, and one of those things we're good at was killing people, slaughtering people, torturing people. I mean, they took crucifixion from some previous generation, some previous cultures conceived crucifixion, but the Romans they kind of popularized crucifixion. I mean, think about that. A brutal death that's going to be public. That's really going to show people, don't steal, don't kill, because we're going to put you up on that hill like these other guys. And this guy must have watched people scream and gnash their teeth and call for their mama and the toughest atheist, right? They say no atheists in the foxholes, right? When those things come upon you, guess what? Everybody turns into a believer very fast. And the last three words are probably the most hardened atheist when he sees death coming is going to be, oh my God. <laughs> That's probably what it's going to be. And uh, this guy is watching all these people die. He watched the other thieves cast things in Jesus Christ's teeth. He watched people probably scream and wail and beg for mercy. And he watches Jesus Christ calmly up there, not revile when he was reviled. He watched these people jeering at him and calling for his blood and commanding him to come down. Do you understand the scene that went on around that cross? They set up their lawn chairs, grabbed their jersey mics, and sat down and watched him turn it into a picnic and jeered at him and made fun of him and sneered. And they're sticking, you know, anesthetic in his face to try to numb the pain and he wouldn't receive it. And he gets his, lifts that head with that strength and says, it is finished, and cries with a loud voice, not a little mishkina, you know, oh, help me, mama. Right, you know, he just screams with a loud voice, and then he just, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and just, boom, bows his head and gives up the ghost. And this guy with his spear and his armor and his hardened heart says, there was something special about this guy, something special about this man. And you and I have to come to the same conclusion. There was something special and is something special about this man. So Jesus Christ is, in the book of Luke, the ideal man, right? The ultimate man. Pilate makes this saying, right? In John chapter 19, he says, Behold the man. And many a message has been preached around that phrase, Behold the man, and we're going to behold the man tonight. And um, in thinking about the man... You see some things in the book of Luke. Number one, you see his genealogy is traced back to the first man, Adam. It's all about his humanity. It's not like that in Matthew. Matthew went back to Abraham and David to show his royalty. This is showing his humanity, going back to the first man, Adam. This book of Luke contains the most detailed accounts of his humanity. We find about his, 
His mother is talked about. His infancy is talked about. His boyhood is talked about. These are not talked about in any other Gospels. Why? Because the focus is on the humanity. And Luke is the Gospel of, quote, the man whose name is the branch, right? He is going to focus on the man. And you see the breakdown in your, on your sheet, or if you're watching on YouTube, hi, uh, you could see the breakdown there. So let's get into some Bible pictures and some big truths. So let's go to chapter 1 of Luke, and let's pull some things out of this, shall we? Um, Luke chapter 1, verse number 3. We'll start by breaking these sections down. You see I have these sections, the Son of Man this, the Son of Man that. Let's start with the Son of Man prepared, right? The Son of Man who is made like unto his brethren. All right? Luke 1, 3. It seemed good to me also, uh, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Please notice, the book is written to give Theophilus certainty. Certainty. That word certainty appears seven times in your Bible. Certainty. Right? Because think about it. There's so much confusion in the world, a man needs to start with certainty. Amen. And Theophilus means loved by God. Philo, lover, Theo, God. Loved by God. Right? And a man who is loved by God, you need to begin with a certainty wherein thou hast been instructed. God wants to start the story with how sure and steadfast these things are. It seems fantastic that God could become a man. Isn't it interesting, the gospel about the humanity of Christ says, let me just make sure you get how certain this is that God became a man, right? You have to get the fact that God came down and dwelt among us. That is different than every other religion on the face of the earth. Buddha was not God manifest in the flesh. Brahma was not God manifest in the flesh. Zoroaster was not God manifest in the flesh. Uh, Pope John Smiggitybaum was not, was not God manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. And it seems fantastic to our human sensibilities. So God says, hey, hey, let me just start by making it really certain for you. Because if you can get it certain that God walked where you walked and felt what you felt and overcame what you go through, that'll give you confidence to do it yourself. Because if he did it, he can give you the power to do it as well. So, 1-1. One, one. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth an order, a declaration, it seems like others had tried to do what Luke was going to do. And maybe that's why we have so many spurious Gospels out there, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Marcion and the Gospel of Judas. I guess others tried to write things down, but this is what God recorded. This is the canon of Scripture here. Let's look at verse 35. 35. Let's draw a parallel here. Here's Gabriel speaking to Mary, and she's like, how am I, you know, she's like, how is this going to work? Right? She's, I heard about the birds and the bees, but what is this? You know, I mean, how is this going to happen? Um, 35, and the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. If the Holy Ghost could bring the incarnate word out of a sinful woman, why can't he bring the written word through sinful man? Think about that, right? We got no problem. We accept the virgin birth. That's like one of the fundamentals of the faith. And all these fundamentalists out there will accept the virgin birth as one of the tenets that God could bring a, a, a divine human being through the vessel of a fallen creature like Mary. Well, if he could do that with the incarnate word, why couldn't he give you a pure book, even though it came to the hands of men like Peter and James and John? Right? The same God that could bring the miraculous in the flesh can bring the miraculous in print. Amen? Amen? Uh, keep reading with me. Verse 37. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Even a virgin birth would not be impossible to God. And notice Mary's response. This is a great response to remember for everyone that, you know, wants to pray to Mary. And I had a dad like that. My dad was hung up on Mary. I mean... Prayed to Mary, thought Mary was going to, you know, take him over that river and be there at the hour of his death. And he used to drive me crazy. And I, I got nicer about it as I got older in the Lord. But in the beginning, I just wanted to 
put an effigy of Mary in the kitchen and burn it on the stove. I used to get so upset because I'm like, that's not Mary. Mary never told you to do that. And if you if you could hear what the biblical Mary would have would be saying right now, it would be just a face palm emoji all the time. Like, oh, you know, I didn't tell you to do this, guys. Right? Her only command in the Bible is, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. John 2, 5. But look at Mary's response here when she's told that she's going to be blessed among women, not above women. Okay? Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify my immaculate conception. <laughs> no. My soul doth magnify the Lord. <laughs> Mary was a good lady. We should preach about Mary. She's a wonderful example. She magnified God. She was a humble servant of the Lord. She says, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God, capital G, my Savior. Amen. There's Mary confessing her need for a Savior. So contrary to popular opinion and heretical teaching, Mary confessed she was a sinner in need of a Savior. Man, if Mary could preach, she'd be telling us to get saved. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Again, that's not me being mean-spirited. That's just Bible. That's just Bible, right? You've got to point out some things. You know, we've gotten so, we've been moved so far away from the truth by the culture we live in. When somebody says the truth, it almost arrests your senses. Like, ooh, don't, don't, don't go there, Pat. Don't, don't make fun of anything, Pat. But I'm not. I'm just saying, Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior. And it's blasphemy to make her co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ. It's blasphemy to say she was immaculately conceived. Only Jesus Christ was immaculately conceived. It was blasphemy to say her body was a... Oh, I got me scared. It was blasphemy to say that she was assumed up into heaven, and you know that that was the, that was invented in 1950 or so. They came up with that idea, the assumption on August 15th, right? I remember all my holy days, right? That's all blasphemy, and you could say that with love and not being mean spirited, but that's blasphemy, right? We're here to learn the Bible, and part of the Bible is pointing out error. Uh, Luke chapter two. Now, in focusing on the humanity of Christ, Luke gives us the fullest account of the birth of Jesus Christ. The beloved physician gives the most detailed account of Jesus Christ's birth. Notice in verse number 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Please notice who's in power when Jesus Christ comes the first time. Rome is in power when Jesus Christ comes the first time. I bet my bottom taller that Rome's going to be in power when Jesus Christ comes again the second time. Right? And please notice, there is an Antichrist there, Caesar Augustus. Caesar is a type of Antichrist. Caesar Augustus is leveling a worldwide tax, a worldwide financial strain on everybody, everywhere, every place. I wonder if that's not going to be similar before the second coming when Rome is in power and an Antichrist is issuing a worldwide financial obligation to everybody. Just a very interesting parallel before the first coming, coming soon to you very soon before the second coming. All right? Now look at 2.22. If we didn't throw enough sand in the eyes of anybody that worships Mary, let's do it one more time with feeling in Luke 2.22. It says, And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses, were accomplished. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So there's the presentation of Jesus Christ at the temple. Why they do that? Because in the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, a woman who brings forth a man-child was called, quote, unclean. Right? So much for... Hail, holy queen enthroned above, right? I mean, she was unclean, and she had to purify herself according to the law. And what they have to bring, Leviticus says, you don't have to flip there, but it's Leviticus 12.6 says, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove. Now look what they bring in verse 24. 24. They come and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's missing? The lamb. She didn't bring a lamb. Mary didn't need to bring a lamb because she had the lamb of God in her arms. Right? You see that little nugget from God's word that I stole from somebody else? Right? That's just, right? They bring, you had to bring a lamb and turtle doves or pigeons. And they got the lamb. Here's the lamb. And they 
They only mentioned the turtle doves or the pigeons because Jesus Christ was that Lamb of God that they were offering back to God. Verse 26, And it was revealed unto him, this is Simeon, by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen, very important, interesting verse, the Lord's Christ. That means the Lord has a Christ and somebody else has a Christ. The Lord has a Christ and the devil has a Christ. The Lord has a church and the devil has a church. The Lord has a bride, the devil has a bride. The Lord has a way of salvation, the devil has a way of damnation. They, he is the ultimate counterfeiter. And I would gamble this if I was a betting man. I would bet my bottom dollar that there was another baby born that night. That probably was little baby Judas or something like that. I would bet money that if God is consistent, that the same night his Christ was born, I bet you somewhere over there in Jerusalem, around that area, another Christ was born. Another false Christ was being born. Another baby was being born that would grow up to be that false Christ that would oppose Jesus Christ. I'm just throwing that out there. You could stone me for it, but I just think knowing the way God moves and the way the devil tries to imitate, if God's doing something, I'm sure the devil's trying to counter somewhere else. Right? You read about that in Genesis 6. God says in Genesis 3, I'm going to bring forth a seed, and the devil starts bringing his boys down, and they start intermingling with women to bring forth their own seed. Right? It's just, that's what he does. What, he is the ultimate counterfeiter. Look at verse 42. This is an interesting picture here. Luke 2.42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. Please notice that Mary and Joseph lose sight of the Savior when he's 12 years old. You ever wonder why that's in the Bible? Why when he was 12? Anything happened when he was 10 or 13? <laughs> you know, why, why 12? Well, 12 is the number of Israel, right? The number of the 12 Jewish tribes, right? Stay with me now. Look at verse 44. But they supposing him to have been in the company went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. Interesting side note, not in the message, but it's easy to lose Jesus Christ in a crowd. We like the crowds. We like when church is full. We want to see 400 people in that auditorium. We want to see big campaigns. But it's easy to lose Jesus Christ in a crowd. Amen. He's always talking to individuals here, ladies at a well, guy on the side of the road. Why do you think that is? Because it's easy to lose the Lord in a crowd. And we like the crowd. We like that eye service that, wow, look what you're doing, God. God says, what does the crowd have to do with anything I'm doing? I've always worked in individual hearts. But I digress. Verse 45. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. So they went a day's journey. So they went one day's journey. That's one day. And then another day. So that means for two days, they lost Jesus Christ. When he was 12, Amen. the number of Israel. I read about a nation, Israel, that seems to have lost their Messiah for two days, 2,000 years. Amen. One day is with the Lord is 1,000 years. And it says in verse 36 that after three days, as they're in that third day now, they find him in the temple. Interesting that after two days, Jesus Christ is in the temple. Right? Picture of the millennium. After two days, he's going to rise again. The third day, 1,000, uh, 2,000, and we're just up on that third thousandth year, which is going to be that millennial reign, that 1,000 year of rest. And you know where you're going to find Jesus Christ? He's going to be in the temple. He's going to be teaching from Jerusalem, and it's just pictured right there. Amen. How about chapter 3, verse 21? And here's Jesus Christ being that man identifying with man, and as the Son of Man, please notice that He identifies Himself with the sons of men to be baptized with them. See that? 321. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized. Why do you have to get baptized? Because that's what everybody was doing. And He's identifying Himself with His nation, with His people. He says, I, I got to do it because this is what I got to do. I gotta, I'm identifying myself. Baptism is about identification. And he had to identify himself with his people as their Messiah through that act. It says, also, he was baptized. How about verse 23? And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. That's when his ministry really begins at his 30-year-old baptism. Being very important parenthetical. As was supposed the son of Joseph. See, the book of Luke 
gives us the bloodline of Jesus Christ, not the birthright of Jesus Christ, but the bloodline of Jesus Christ, his humanity, not through Joseph, but through Mary. I've said this before, but it warrants saying it again. They supposed that Jesus was, that Joseph was Jesus' father, but if you look in uh, chapter 2, verse 33, if you want to look back at 233, here's a little verse that separates your King James Bible your King James Bible from other false versions. I should have brought them with me. I didn't. But read Luke 2.33 in your NIV, in your ESV, in your HCB, in your, you know, Do-Re-Mi. Right? Read this verse in other versions. The King James is very precise. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Very careful not to call Joseph the father of Jesus Christ. Other Bibles do, and they're wrong. Which Bible do you want? The one that preserves the deity of Christ in all places or the one that dips the colors in some places? Right? If, if you wrote a note or a letter to your wife and I was going to tell other people about it, would you like me to mangle it in some spots and just get the gist? Oh, you got the gist. He loves her. Yeah, but I want my words to be preserved. I don't want you dipping the colors anywhere. And that's what happens in a lot of new Bibles. Yeah, it keeps the gist but it dips it here, it dips it there. And if you follow all those little dips of the colors, there's a trail of the serpent behind them because there's a trend to those changes. Who would want to attack the blood? Who would want to attack his virgin birth? Who would want to confuse the way of salvation? Oh, I, oh, 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 I know, I know, I know. The one that deals in darkness and subtlety and confusion. For God is not the author of confusion. All right, keep going with me now. Go back to 323. So it gives this genealogy, and it goes all the way to 338, the last verse of the chapter. It says it goes all the way back to the Son of Man, gets traced all the way back to be the Son of Adam, which was, watch this now, the Son of God. Because in the Old Testament, he was the only man who could call himself the Son of God. Abraham wasn't a son of God. Moses wasn't a son of God. Isaiah wasn't a son of God. The Bible is very precise that only Adam was the limited, definite article, the son of God. Because nobody was born again in the Old Testament. Nobody had the Holy Spirit indwelling them in the Old Testament. Nobody was saved like you are saved now in the Old Testament. They didn't have the image of God, so they were not the sons of God. They were Friends of God. Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses spoke to God as a man speaketh unto his friend. But you're a son. Amen. Like Adam was a son. Because right? you, you got the image back. Amen. Let's keep going. Chapter 4. Now we get into the son of man tempted. The Bible says he was tempted like as we are. Can we just stay there for a second? Yeah. Anybody been tempted this week? Amen. Anybody had some trials? I'll put my hands up for all of you. I'll put both my hands up. <laughs> I put my foot up if I could jump up and hold myself up in the air. I put my, both my feet and both my hands up in the air and try to stick my tongue out of my mouth to be an extra digit. All right? Because we've all had temptations and trials and vexings. What a blessing to know that my beloved Savior was tempted like as we are. Amen. Kind of be like, son, just stay behind me. I've walked this terrain before. I know, I know this. Right? Please notice some differences here about Luke, though. The devil challenged the first Adam. The second Adam challenges the devil. Amen? The devil ruined the first Adam. The Son of Man spoils the, the devil. The first Adam involved humanity in defeat. The last Adam includes man in victory. Luke picks up on all that. And then we get into, there's a big chunk now, from 4.13... All the way through chapter 21 is the Son of Man touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And now we see him. I'm going to give you seven things in this section, seven things about this man, how he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities and yet without sin, teaching, Amen. preaching, and demonstrating. Number one, look at verse 14 of chapter 4. I want you to first see the man of wisdom. All right? The man of wisdom, 4.14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. He was the wisest of all teachers, 
right? The wisdom of this man. Number two, the power and ability of this man. Please notice the power and ability of this man. Look at verses uh, 33 of this same chapter 4. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone, let us alone. Interesting. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him, and heard him not. And they were all amazed, and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commanded the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round out. Please notice his power over the enemy. This man was a special man. Right? A man of wisdom. A man of power able to cast out devils. You got right there, by the way, a definition of an unclean spirit. You got devil, unclean spirits, and us all in a series together because they're the same thing. The devil, our little devils, they're unclean spirits, and usually there's more than one of them, right? Keep going with me. How about this one? Go to chapter 7. How about this man? Again, when we go through these Gospels, it's a little bit of preaching because it's a good time to brag on Jesus. If you have a problem with that, I, I check your salvation, but Amen. it's good to brag on Jesus. A man full of sympathy, right? You know, it's hard to have any simpatico if you've never been there or done that. Jesus Christ has so much sympathy because he was fully man, right? 7-11. Oh, I need a Slurpee. No, 7-1, all right? How about some sympathy for the sick and the diseased? Isn't that a blessing? Got any illnesses? Got any infirmities? Got any, you know, some problems physically? You know what? God's got some sympathy for you. You think he's mean, I know. I think he's cruel, I know. But God's like, listen, I sympathize with you. You're going through a fallen world with a broken body full of sin and you wanted free will. So these are some of the repercussions of it. But I'll give you grace. I'll give you grace. It's not like that other teaching, right? The other teaching out there says you'll never get sick if you're always walking with God. I mean, just people like that, you got to roll your eyes and walk on down the road, you know. I mean, I had a guy one time, and I was talking about Mel Sabaka. Mel Sabaka was one of the most spiritual people we probably all know. I mean, I mean, those of you that know Mel well, right? I mean, closest thing to like a giant in the faith that we probably ever encounter. I mean, I know Pat Dean and Mike Veach are giants in the faith to me as well. But, you know, when somebody dies there, they get a little more lore and reputation, right? So, you know how Mel Sabaka died? He died miserably. He died with advanced Parkinson. He couldn't get out of bed. He was like a, a shell of the man he once was, a man that thundered from the pulpit, that took his shoes off and threw him into the ceiling and jumped on the front row and just slapped that numb hand into the pulpit and say, whoa, and like scream and wake the whole universe up. That man died shaking and incoherent, right? And I told this to a guy one time who prescribed to a certain ilk of Christianity, and he said, no, no, no. That man couldn't have been walking with God. I had to do everything but not strangle this person. Because this dude just felt, I felt, and I never knew my grandparents, my grandfathers, but if I had a grandfather, I felt like this man just spit on my grandfather's name. And I got so indignant with this guy, I was like, you, do you know who you're talking about? <laughs> you know of whom you speak? You know? I told the story of how Mel Sabaka you know, walked into the cancer ward and, and said, well, God gave me cancer so I could speak to these guys in the cancer ward uh, because he tried to get into the cancer ward to witness to people, and the doctor said, no, you can't come in here. And he said, well, I'm going to pray that God gives me cancer. And when he showed up one day, he said, Doctor, God, God gave me cancer so I could get into the cancer ward. They said, Mr. Sabaka, please don't say that. And this man said, oh, no, no, that man, that, that couldn't have been God. That man couldn't have been walking with God. You Pharisee, <laughs> you don't know anything about God. Right? And I had to do everything but, like, strangle him. Because, you know, I look up to Pastor Mel as I should. And, but God has sympathy for the sick and the diseased, you know. If you and I can hear a story about a young kid with cancer and I have a heart broken, you think God's heart doesn't care or break or sympathize? Right? Look at seven, look at seven, one to six. You know, this centurion has this little girl who's, this servant, I should say, who's sick and ready to die. And, you know, look, it says right there in verse six, it says, then Jesus went with them. I like that. They come and say, Lord, this guy, this guy, he's got a servant, he's sick and ready to die. And they didn't have to twist Jesus' arm. He's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of him, I'll heal him. Because he had compassion and sympathy for the sick and the diseased. Look at verse 11. How about 
sympathy for the dismayed, for those that are down. Look at that, 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow. Much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. Isn't that a blessing? That's a sad scene, right? Woman's lost her husband. Now she's lost her only son. She's all alone. Jesus Christ has compassion on her. And there's all kinds of doctrinal implications of that. But don't let the doctrine make you lose the humanity of the story. I know this points to types and pictures and some of you are trying to connect the dots right now. That's wonderful. That's nice and intellectual. But on the ground level for the rest of us live, here's the Savior of the world walking by saying, look at this poor lady. I'm going to help this woman. And in verse number 14, he says seven words to this guy. He says, young man, I say unto thee, arise. God's perfect number, seven words. Because God wants to perfect you, right? If you're sleeping, if you're laying there half dead, God says, get up. It's time to get up, son. And notice, when Jesus Christ speaks, you've got to get up. You've got to rise up one more time. You may be living in pleasure. You may think you're as good as dead. God says, get up. I got some perfecting work to still do in you. And notice what happens in verse 15. He gets up and he begins to speak. When Jesus Christ gives you new life, it's only natural for you to open your mouth and begin to speak forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Right? So he's got compassion for the diseased, compassion for the dismayed. I got another D for you. How about verse 19? How about some sympathy for the discouraged? Let me ask another question. Anybody been discouraged this week? I'll put up both hands, my toes, right? Right? If I was a... If I had a tail, I'd put that up too, but the evolutionists are wrong. I don't have a tail, but I'd wave that up there too to say, hey God, I've been discouraged this week. You know who was discouraged in John chapter 7, verse 9? I'm saying Luke chapter 7, verse 19 to 22. You know who was discouraged? John the Baptist was discouraged. John the Baptist wearing, you know, camel's hair and eating locusts with wild honey. John the Baptist, rough and tough, you know, leathern girdle, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you serpents, you generation of vipers. You know, that John the Baptist who stood up to the, to the Pharisees and, you know, said, I'm not worthy to carry Jesus Christ's shoes and, you know, lace up his shoes or anything like that. That John the Baptist got discouraged because he got thrown in jail. And he's like, art thou he that should come or look we for another? Did I miss the memo, God? Did, I, did an email get deleted? Did you give a subset point to that bigger point? I thought this was the Messiah. You know what Jesus does? Go tell that John to stop crying in his beer. Tell John to suck it up. No. He says, watch this. Pow, wing, boom. You know, he cures some people. He says, tell John what you've seen and heard. Right? He says right there, 22, go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to the poor, the gospel is preached. He gives John some more evidence that he is the Messiah he promised to be. You know what he's doing? He's having some sympathy for a man who's discouraged. He's discouraged. He's in jail. He's getting ready to get his head cut off. And he's wondering, hey, what happened? Where's the kingdom? I didn't think the kingdom included decapitation, God. But he says, let me just, let me just show you a few more miracles to assure you that I'm with you. Keep going. Last one. How about 36? How about sympathy for the despised? Now, if none of the other ones were you, this has got to be you. 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, hello, that's me, that's you, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, <laughs> This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." But Jesus Christ had sympathy for this woman. Even though she was despised by religion, Jesus Christ welcomed this woman. Isn't that a blessing? The world looks at you as this off-scouring. Look at you. I know who you are. I know where you've been. I saw you as a child. I saw you at the club. I saw the way you used to be. I saw your anger and your filth and all that stuff that you're about. And you, come, you came to Jesus? Jesus said, yeah, he came to me. The Lord welcomes you with open arms. The Lord says, hey, he says, uh, 
just to stick it in their eyes. You know what he says in verse 48? I think he said it nice and loud so all those Pharisees heard it. Thy sins are forgiven thee. <laughs> and that drove them crazy, right? They, who is this to forgive his sins also? You know why? Because religion is self-righteous. And self-righteousness doesn't appreciate forgiveness. Forgiveness. The loosing of debts. If somebody showed up tomorrow and said, hey, I'm going to pay off the rest of your mortgage. You know what you'd do? You'd kiss his feet. You'd cry and you'd kiss his feet. And the Savior of the world said, I just paid off all your debts. I just paid off your sin debt. You know what the response is? Kiss his feet. Weep and kiss his feet. Something else about this man. He had great sympathy, but he also was a man, and we keep saying it a lot because you can't really talk about Jesus Christ and not mention the prayer warrior that he was. But uh, let's go to, yeah, the man of prayer. The man of prayer. The man of prayer had complete dependence on God. He always liked to show us that he was completely depending on God. Go back to Luke chapter 3. I'll just show you a few stops here. How am I doing? All right, got to hurry, got to hurry. Luke 3.21. You see Luke 3.21? He's praying at his baptism. He's praying when the whole thing starts. See that? Go to chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. He's praying when it gets busy. It's getting busy. Everybody's crowding him. It says he withdrew himself and prayed when the ministry got busy. How about chapter 6, verse 11 to 12? And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. He was, when he was battling hardened hearts, you know what he did? He retreated to God and Spoke to God about those probably hardened hearts. A man of prayer. Go to chapter 9. I'm not going to read all these verses for time's sake, but he was a man of glory and beauty. We'll circle back to this one at the end of our lesson tonight. But in 9, verses 28 to 36, you see him transfigured, and they see this man shine the sun, this man exceeding glory and beauty. 1718. 1718. Look at 1718. A man concerned with the world. He's going to tell this, he's going to heal these lepers, these ten lepers, and only one of them is going to turn back. And in verse 18 it says, There were not found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger, the Samaritan. Notice that Jesus Christ wasn't just healing Jews, wasn't just thinking of Jews, he's also got this Samaritan in that bunch right there. Because Jesus Christ's forgiveness was not just going to touch one nation, it was going to touch everybody. It's a man that even though he directly came for Israel, I got that, he knew that his work was going to affect the whole world. He was going to be a light to the Gentiles. And he sticks that Samaritan Gentile into this story to be like, he's going to get healed too. And guess what? He's going to be the one that's praising me. When Israel, when you ignore me, guess what? This goy over here, he's the one that lifts up his voice and praises God. This half-breed, this, this one guy, right? He's concerned with everybody. And the last thing I want to say about him, if you want to go to chapter 19, he was the sociable man. Sociable. I know my handwriting is terrible. But the sociable man, 19, Look at verse number 7, right? He, he goes into Zacchaeus' house. He tells him, Zacchaeus, you come down, right? And it says, and they, when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was just gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner, right? Isn't it a blessing that your Savior was sociable? Amen. That he got close to people? went to their homes, rubbed shoulders with them. He was a sociable man. You see verse 41? You see what he's doing in 41? It says in 41, And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. He wasn't weeping over the buildings. He wasn't weeping over the edifices. He was weeping over the people. Jesus Christ cared about people. Do you care about people? Yeah, no. 
Well, then what spirit are ye of? Because the spirit of my Savior was a sociable man who cared about people, had concerns for people, not just the great doctrines, but the people, the people, the people. Let's go to chapter 22. So that's a section on the man touched and teaching. Now the next section is the man redeeming. Chapters 22 and 23 is the man redeeming. See 22:43, He's getting ready to redeem mankind and buy him back from bondage. And it says, There appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Please notice that this man needed strength from heaven to accomplish this task. You need strength from above to redeem anything for God. Amen. You're not buying something back from bondage. You're not taking something back from the enemy without strength and help from above. If the Savior needed it, you need it. Verse uh, chapter 23, the whole chapter is the man redeeming what the law could not. Just like another guy in your Bible named Boaz. Boaz redeems Ruth when the other guy couldn't do it. Remember that they were going to redeem Ruth? And they say, well, there's a close redeemer, Boaz. We've got to try this guy out first. And they go out there that day in Ruth chapter 4. I'm just going to paraphrase. And, and this man says, I can't redeem Ruth. It'll mar my inheritance. And Boaz says, I could do it. You know what that's a great picture of? Because Ruth was a Gentile, and the law was not meant to redeem you. So guess what? Jesus Christ stepped out and said, oh, I could do it. I'll, I'll redeem him. Amen. There's Jesus Christ redeeming what the law could not redeem on that cross. The law couldn't redeem your wicked soul. It couldn't save you. It couldn't help you. It only left you helpless. Amen. And so what? Jesus Christ stepped up and said, I'll be that kinsman redeemer. I'll be made like unto you. I'll take on flesh and blood to save your wretched souls. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then 24 is the man exalted. And notice a couple of things about the man exalted. The risen Savior is still a man. In verses 13 to 15, he's a man walking and talking with his fellow disciples on the road to Emmaus. There he is. There's the man walking and talking on the road to Emmaus. And then um, verse 36 to 43. There's the man eating with them in the upper room. Not a blessing? Verse 39, just read 39 with me. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and blood, bones as ye see me have. God, Jesus Christ, was not resurrected only in spirit form, like our Jehovah's Witnesses friends like to say. They say, well, he just came up like Puff the Magic Dragon, and, like a spirit, that's why he could morph to all these different forms. No, 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 no. He says right there, Touch me. Handle me. A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And just to prove it, it says in verse number uh, 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. He took a physical piece of something and put it in his physical mouth and ate physical food because he was a resurrected body. So he's eating with them. And he's talking with them. What do those two, two things have in common? Fellowship with us. Right? He was resurrected and he became that man so he could fellowship with us again. Talking on a road, sitting at a table. It's fellowship. Like in the garden. That's what God's original plan was with us. 51. 51. And it came to pass... While he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Please notice there that the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, begins and ends with rejoicing. They're rejoicing at his birth in the beginning. They're rejoicing at the prospect of a coming at the beginning. And at the end, he's gone up to heaven and they're still rejoicing. Notice Luke ends in the temple. Because remember, Luke is still a Jewish book doctrinally. So it's still about the temple. In the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples didn't know about any plan to bring in a church. They're still going to the temple. So the book of Luke ends in the temple. Is That Jewish economy is still very much in effect. This idea of the church, the gospel going into all the world to every creature, like Jew and Gentile in one body, unknown to them. So God revealed it to Paul. 
Luke begins and ends with rejoicing because God became a man. That's cause for rejoicing. You know what feast of your seven feasts lines up with that? Tabernacles. When they would make booths to commemorate the fact that God would come down and tabernacle with men. Jesus Christ was born around the, ta- on the feast of tabernacles. Not on the winter solstice, even though it's my birthday. He wasn't born on December 25th. He was born probably September, October. On the Feast of Tabernacles, when you celebrated God tabernacling, tabernacling with men. That's why they made a booth. And you know what you had to do during the Feast of Tabernacles? Leviticus 23, verse number 40 says, Ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. It was a time of rejoicing to think about God coming down to dwell with us. And the book of Luke begins and ends with rejoicing because it's about God coming down as a man to dwell among us. So, let's finish. Go back to Luke 2. Making any sense so far? Amen. I know I just did a very fast version there. Some of your heads are spinning, but, you know, that's how it is, man. I apparently go too fast, right? On the highways and through Bible study. Luke 2, 52. Let me park on just a... I'm just watching my clock here. I'm watching my clock because I know there's a kids' class going on. And having taught kids' classes for many years on on evening services. I know what it's like to be that teacher when the preacher is going very long and the kids are turning into little gremlins and trying to climb the walls and you've tried every trick in the book, like, you know, all right, let's do uh, Simon Says. You know, it's just like they're like, they're like harpies. After When you start getting close to 9 o'clock, it's just like, you know, like, like where's my mother? You know, it's just like, so I got to make sure I finish on time and, you know, make sure that nobody goes crazy over there. So a couple of big ideas in the book of Luke. Here's the big idea with a couple little subpoints. Big idea, one big idea. The Son of Man is our ultimate object lesson. He was a man, and his humanity teaches us a lot. Number one, Jesus Christ is our ideal man in life. He is our ultimate example about walking with God. Like you have to walk with God through work, through play. You've got to walk with God. You've got to learn to have a relationship with God. Not just on Thursday or Sunday during religious activities. You're supposed to have a walk with God all the time. Look at Luke 2.52. Part of that is growth. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus Christ had to grow in his walk the same way you have to grow in your walk. If your baby is still a baby when he's 16, you got a problem. If a 16-year-old still has to have a diaper changed and be fed and burped, you got a problem. Right, Mario? You got a problem. Now these guys are I know, not you, not you, Alex. Not you. Right? I, I get somebody, I just throw that out there to get somebody's attention. Right, Stephen? Okay. Right? There's supposed to be some growth there. Supposed to be some thriving there. Jesus Christ grew, you and I are supposed to grow. What else? Jesus Christ had to pray, read the Bible, memorize verses, go to services. As a man, he had to do those things so he would increase. And you think you're good. Okay. How about 2242? So I don't need to go to church. I got the Bible. Okay. <laughs> Have a nice life. 2244. I'll see you at the judgment seat of Christ. Make sure you're in front of me because I want to be behind you. Luke 2242. You know what else he had to do? As a man... Luke twenty two forty two, he said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus Christ had to submit to the will of his Father, just like you have to submit. Those are things about the human walk, right? We're supposed to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and every day we're supposed to die daily. I die daily. Paul said, I die daily. Every day you've got to pick up that cross and submit to the will of God. That's a great example that Jesus Christ gives us in life, how to walk with God, grow and submit. That's what life is. It's a process of growing and then submitting. Grow a little more, then submit. It's all about that. Go to chapter 6. How about number two, Jesus Christ, the ideal man in ministry? And if ministry is about dealing with people, then Jesus Christ was the greatest man who ever dealt with people. He's our example in walking with God. He's our exhortation in dealing with people. You know what he did a lot of in Luke? 
He asked questions. Here's a really tough question he asked some people. Luke 6, 46. This one's a tough one. This one's like kicks you in the teeth. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Oh, my. I think that's what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be like. Why'd you do that? I, mm. Yeah, he's going to hang your head. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry I did that. Right? Why'd you do that? Did you think it was right? No. Why'd you do that? It's a great question, right? Yeah. I mean, the Lord just asked amazing questions. He knew how to deal with people. A good question doesn't need to be answered. It facilitates an answer in the hearer. Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Right. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I guess I haven't really made you my Lord. Ah, you got it, son. Right? Hudson Taylor said he's either Lord of all, or if he's not Lord at all, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Right? What part of your life is not submitted to his control? What's part, what part of your life is not submitted to His Word? What part of your life are you managing on your own? Don't call Him Lord, Lord, if he's, you're not doing the things which He says. So in dealing with people, if you're going to deal with people, you don't have to have all the answers. You just know how to ask the right questions. Why are you doing that again? And notice it's a why question. Why are you doing that again? That'll just stop the mouth. Now, it doesn't mean they're always going to repent. They may just say, they might give you the Italian salute and walk on down the road or a Bronx cheer and walk on down the road and just say, mm, to you, and just walk on down the road. But you stop their mouth if you ask the right question. Amen to that. Hey, why'd you do that? Where'd you get that in the Bible? What verse is that from? Did you get that from a, a trusted elder? Right? Did somebody share that with you in discipleship? Did you learn that in church? Did you pray about that? Oh, oh. <laughs> and they'll either repent or they'll get harder and walk away. But Jesus Christ modeled some great questions. You know what else he modeled in Luke 9, 23? Luke 9, 23. Again, here he is dealing with people. He knows the questions to ask and he knows that the quest for a good disciple is a daily quest. He says in Luke 9, 23, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and, and take up his cross daily. He challenged people to be consistent. And that's when you deal with people. The goal is consistency. I'm glad you came to church one week. But I want to see you, in, I want to see you 20 weeks down the road. I'm glad you came to youth group once. Can you come to youth group for the next five months? I'm glad you memorized one verse. Can you memorize a few more? Right? The goal is consistency. It's not, oh, today I'm sold out. What about tomorrow? I'm sanctified today. What about Thursday? What about Wednesday? What about Saturday morning? Right? Are you that? Are you sold out all the time? Jesus Christ knew in working with people, the goal was to get them consistent. Consistency is the key. We don't need firecrackers. We need laser beams. Laser beams are steady and penetrating. Firecrackers make a lot of noise, but they're here and then they're gone. There's a lot of Christian firecrackers. Oh, oh, I'm on fire. I'm just on fire. I'm just so on fire for God. You know, it's like, all right, stop, drop, and roll, buddy. Okay. I don't get that excited about that, I'm going to be honest with you. I smile. I nod. Oh, that's great, brother. But I want to see you in a year and a half when it's rainy on a Thursday night. I want to see you come out to Bible study and still be as excited on those days as when there's a special guest speaker or a camp. And you're like, oh, I'm on fire. I'm on fire. That's great. I'm great. I'm glad you're on fire. And we need some of that. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing on that. We need some of that. But then we need some people that are just, well, stand on the corners at 8 a.m., you know, when nobody's watching. Like, you need some of that. You need some of that, that consistency. And Jesus Christ knew that. Finally, Luke 22. Lastly, he's our ultimate example. In life, in ministry, and in glory. He is our ultimate encouragement to overcome the flesh. Because in Luke 22, verse 25, is that what I wanted? That is not what I wanted. I have no idea what verse I wanted there. Mm, forget it. That's not what I wanted. I don't know what the verse was I wanted. I don't know what verse I wanted. But... Oh, 24, 24, 24. Yeah, 20, I got I got the wrong 20. 24, 25. He's speaking on the road to Emmaus, and he says unto them, 
O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? He's saying Jesus Christ had to overcome as a man and then enter into glory. And that's an encouragement to us because if you overcome in the flesh, you will share in Jesus Christ's glory. But no cross, no crown, no suffering, no reigning. And that's why the churches are empty. That's why the King James Bible is a growing stale. That's why the streets are empty and devoid of preachers. That's why nobody hands out tracts. That's why the prayer benches are empty. That's why the tears are dry. Because nobody's willing to be uncomfortable, to be broken, and to be willing to lay themselves on an altar and say, I surrender all, all to thee I freely give. Nobody's willing to do that. But that's what Jesus Christ said is how you get the crown. If you suffer, you'll reign. And if you suffer with me, you'll also be glorified together with me. And Jesus Christ is our example and our encouragement because if He did it, we could follow Him and take up our cross and share in the reward that He got. And what was His reward? To reign over God's kingdom. You know what He wants to share with you? To reign with Him in God's kingdom. He's our example in glory. He went first and we can follow suit. Behold the man, that's some man. Let's have a word of prayer.